This week on Life and Faith. I don't think that there's that many actual true atheists out there really. And most Australians have been raised in a religious background like me. It leaves it leaves your mark on you. So even if you're not a mass going or church going person or synagogue going or whatever going person when you're an adult, that kind of stuff still leaves a mark on you and I think still leaves you open to believing in things that you can't necessarily see. We don't know what's going to make for security 30 years from now. One essay we had to pick a conflict anywhere in the world, Israel, Palestine, whatever you like. I chose my husband's family. And I think it's been disastrous for our national health. You're listening to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Now, I wonder if you're familiar with the term millennial malaise. It describes the disappointment felt by the generation born between about 1980 and 1996. And it's the feeling that life hasn't quite turned out the way you thought it would. Now, Justine, you're kind of at the older end of millennial, aren't you? Is it okay to say that? But do you feel this malaise? I'm, I'm glad you said that rather than geriatric millennial. I don't know if that's actually a word. Um, but yeah, I am, I'm the oldest millennial you can get. I have to admit, though, I do feel more Gen X than millennial. But maybe also that's because of the bad press that millennials tend to get. You know, millennials are pigeonholed as spoilt and entitled. And so obviously no one wants to be seen as that. But there's been more sympathetic takes on millennials recently. So you've got Anne Helen Peterson in the States calling millennials the burnout generation. So this generation who's working constantly, in fact, working themselves into the ground, but for less overall, less financial security, less job stability and so on. So when I saw Bridie Jabor, book Trivial Grievances on the Contradictions, Myths and Misery of Your 30s, well, this seemed like a good opportunity to get an Australian take on millennial malaise. (laughs) It's all sounding a bit grim, but Trivial Grievances, that's a great title. It's just been published, right, this book by HarperCollins. Tell us about Bridie. Well, Bridie Javor's day job is opinion editor for The Guardian. And I don't know about you, Simon, but that's a very enviable job, surely. Sounds and good. So, <laughs> yeah. And so I have to say that if she's feeling millennial malaise, then the rest of us, what hope do we have, right? But the more that she talked, it seemed to me that a big part of that millennial feeling comes down to a crisis of meaning. And she'll talk about that as we go on. But here she is telling us how she first came to write the book. So uh, in 2019, I was feeling a little bit of discontent, uh, just bubbling beneath the surface, not anything, I guess, too obvious or uh, imposing on my life too much. And I went to a couple of dinners, a few dinners actually, and I noticed that the the people around me seemed to be having the same thoughts and experiencing the same misery basically at about 31 And I I went to one dinner and there was a girl who just started a new job. There was a woman who was divorced, uh, one who was having fertility issues, one who just got married and one who was a mom. Very different life stages, all about 31, but very different life stages. And still, they all seemed to be kind of melancholy and, and questioning it all. So I thought, oh, there might be something in this. And I wrote a piece for The Guardian and I wrote it just for the period between Christmas and New Year which is traditionally very quiet on the sites. And that's when you like bank up your pieces in the month before, pieces that aren't tied to the news and that are just about life, 
you know, that's what people want to read. And they usually don't get read super widely, like quite well, but not very widely. And so I thought, oh, it could just go. It's a good summer piece, a little bit of a think piece for summer. Uh, It went up on New Year's Day morning, which I would have thought really not that many people were reading. And by the next day, it had had more than 600,000 views around the world. I got interview requests from New York. I got interview requests from the UK. I got emails from India. I got emails in South America, from LA and from Sydney and country Queensland as well. Just everywhere. It was unbelievable. I've never had such a reaction and I still get messages from people for that. And that was at the end of 2019. So I started thinking, you know, I, I have hit something here. There is something going on. There's something in the atmosphere. Yeah, I think in the book you talk about a tsunami of discontent that you'd tapped into somehow. Um, And what do you think explains that? Like, is it this gap between expectations and the reality of life as a 30-something-year-old? I think it is a good old-fashioned existential crisis. And I think it can happen to anyone at almost any age. And it's not unique to millennials. I think it's happened to previous generations, although probably at slightly different ages. It's interesting that for millennials, it really seems to be hitting en masse in the early 30s. And I think that it boils down to questioning, why are we here? What is the meaning of life? And and how do I live a good life? And essentially, how, how do I be happy? Mm. So let me, let me just wind back a little bit. So at 31 years old, you had already published a novel. Yes. You'd had your first baby, a really cool job. You were married. You sound very successful to me by, <laughs> I guess, those, you know, the conventional standards. Yet you had this really gnawing feeling of yeah. something more. What and, was going on there? And that's also why I thought it was a little bit self-indulgent when I was first thinking about that stuff because – you know, I love my family and I do really enjoy my job. And I thought I don't really have much to complain about, but I think it's about coming to terms with uh, your choices in life. And I think it's perfectly natural, no matter what your life looks like to wonder if it could have been different, because what I think what you realize in your early thirties is these decisions you made in your twenties, when you decide to live in this particular city or you decide to pursue this particular job, at the time, the world is endless possibilities and you think, well, if I don't like it, I'll just go do something else. By the time you're in your 30s, those decisions are much more set. They're not set in stone, but they're much more set and there are certain things that are cut off from you now. Uh, small, silly things, like I'm never going to be a famous rock star. But, Does that but also, particularly cause you pain? <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't sing and I've never played an instrument and I've never been in a band, but suddenly I realise, yeah, it's never going to happen. I think in your mind, even those bizarre things are still distant possibilities. When you're in your early 20s, you've got no idea how your life is going to pan out. And so I think it's about realising what your life looks like and thinking, yeah, because I chose to live in this city, that I'm not going to live probably in another city and my decisions mean something and this is how my life looks. So am I happy with how it looks? And is it also the case that because of Instagram, you could see the life that you might have lived as well? It's always, you're always surrounded by the, maybe the roads that you didn't take in the end. I think that you definitely have much more insight into other people's lives now than we did even a decade ago. And you can see people almost live living their different lives, you know, whether it's in Perth or New York or Paris or 
in Alice Springs. You can see in real time people living their lives there. So I don't, I'm not sure that it really fuels discontent, but it can add to it if you already are questioning your life. I'm sensitive to what you said before about how every generation has experienced this. It's not this malaise that you're talking about isn't specific to millennials. But you do also talk about the pressures that seem to be in the face of this generation, right? There's like increasingly dismal prospects of home ownership, precarious work, climate change. Yeah, very, Um, very unique economic and social circumstances. And that is the big difference between having this misery in your early 30s for millennials and what it was like for previous generations. Of course, there were difficult things that happened for previous generations, but it is a very unique set of economic and social circumstances. Work is much more precarious. There's delayed baby making, which can obviously be a positive thing. Home ownership, well, we all know how that's going. Very Hmm. out of reach for this generation in a way that it definitely was not for previous generations. And when, you know, people talk about housing, I think the discourse around it, people can think that millennials have been entitled about it. Oh, you want your four-bedroom house. You want, you think you deserve a big house. It's not about that. It's wanting a place of security and stability and wanting a place to call home, somewhere where you know you can settle down, where someone can't tell you to leave because they've decided to sell it or do something different with it. And even somewhere where you have the freedom to hang pictures on your walls, like that means something. Having a home means something and is very core to people's sense of stability and sense of self. So I don't think that it's an entitled thing to go on about. And I think it's a very, it has a very real impact on our psyches. The pandemic looms large over your book. How do you think it's going to change things for people? It does loom large over. I tried, it's not a pandemic book, but I couldn't not reference the biggest social upheaval in decades that obviously affected everyone from three-year-olds to 100-year-olds. So it is referenced in the book, but it's pretty interesting to watch how the pandemic has impacted people. And I am seeing so many people in Sydney as well as in Ireland where I have a lot of friends and family, uh, as well as in the UK, as well as in America, making big changes in their lives, a lot to do with work, a lot to do with where they live and also to do with their relationships. I think that we all know plenty of long-term relationships that have broken down in the past year and people who have split up. We know lots of people who have changed their jobs. I've seen so many people moving. I think the pandemic has been a massive catalyst for people to examine their lives and what they want out of life. It's a funny thing, though, because lockdown magnifies what it magnifies. Like it can magnify the really the bad things in your life, I think. But lockdown can also make the good things in your life bad. Like I think that people who live alone in general, the people that I know love to live alone. It's a very positive thing for them. But when you're in lockdown and you're not allowed to have interaction with other people at all, living alone suddenly becomes very like quite bad. Same with having kids. You know, my little kids, I love my kids. I love spending time with them. Lockdown suddenly, it does make them more frustrating. It does make it a lot harder to be a mother. And I think that that could that's a really, really difficult thing about, about lockdown, I think. Like, of course, it magnifies things you're unhappy with. But when it takes the things that you usually would take pleasure in them and makes them more difficult, I think that that's another thing that people struggle with and have struggled with. We'll come back to the question of kids later on in the conversation, since Bridie spends quite a bit of time in trivial grievances dwelling on whether or not to have kids. But before we go there, I asked Bridie why being ironic or being wry about things is part of the millennial condition. 
She mentions it a few times in the book. It's the idea that you don't want to show that you care too much. So I asked her, why is this such a key part of millennial life? I think it's been hugely influenced by the internet. I think that's one of the ways that the internet has influenced the way we speak and uh, maybe even the way that we think to a degree. I think the ironic posturing comes from there. And I don't necessarily think that that's bad to be influenced by the internet. You don't want to make that your 24-7 persona, though, or the way that you really think deep inside yourself. I also think that it's just a good old-fashioned defense mechanism. Uh, When you're struggling with things and life been a bit more difficult than you thought it was going to be or you're unhappy, a really easy thing to do is to take an ironic posture about it and think, well, it doesn't really matter anyway what I think. And I think that people go back and forth with that through being quite vulnerable and open and then they feel themselves becoming vulnerable and so they put the guard back on again, which is their ironic way of thinking and use that. You know, humour has always been used as a deflection and I definitely think that being ironic is a form of humour and a form of that. But you swing, I think that a lot of millennials swing between the two and just use it, try I think use it to protect themselves sometimes from thinking too deeply about aspects of their life they don't want to, or themselves that they don't want to think about. So if I'm hearing you right, are you saying that it's a way to cope with the existential dilemma? Yeah, definitely. Now? Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, that's that's really interesting because we hear, like, the census is telling us that millennials are increasingly dis- disenchanted with organised religion. We had nearly a third of Australians tick no religion in the 2016 census, including 39% of 18 to 34-year-olds. That's from a couple of years ago, but that would include a lot of the millennial cohort. So where are the millennials, you know, looking for meaning if there is this kind of like fear of the existential crisis and then there's ways to deflect it through humour? Where are young people looking for meaning these days? The void. (laughs) They're looking into the void. That's a really interesting and uh difficult question. I think that people try to find meaning in their life in lots of small ways and lots of big ways. Uh, Millennials, I think, find a lot of meaning in their life, in their friendships, their relationships with each other and being able to talk to other people. And um, the internet has been part of that. I think that a lot of millennials work really hard Um, overwork. We do not have the clear demarcation between our leisure time and our work time that we used to have. And I think that people can be sucked into thinking that their productivity and the things that they achieve in their work has moral value and defines them to a degree. And there are other more minor trends. A growing obsession with astrology, I think, is a really I don't think it's a replacement for religion. I think that that's a bit of a cop-out to say that. I don't think that millennials are replacing religion with astrology. I think that there's definitely ironic undertones to believing in astrology, but also astrology well, Actually, is- sorry, can I interrupt you? I'd love to quote you back to yourself on that point. Yeah. I found it really interesting when you write that what we have actually found in astrology is a way to talk about ourselves in a deeply serious way while safe under the cloak of irony. I think that is a really profound thing to say because it seems to suggest that it's difficult to talk about these big questions and so you'll you'll be looking for something to try and a way and to talk bounce about it, yourself that doesn't feel yeah. self-indulgent and gives you a bit of a framework and God can certainly do that for people as well but as I said I don't think astrology is a serious replacement for God or religion for millennials it's sort of like an in into talking about yourself but you're distancing yourself with instead of saying I 
someone who maybe craves attention a bit too much, you can caveat it at the beginning with, I'm a Gemini. So, you know, what I'm actually talking about is Geminis as well as myself, instead of just purely talking about yourself. This prompted me to ask Bridie for her take on the results of the survey CPX conducted over Easter. Because even if Australians are increasingly disaffiliated with organised religion, they seem quite open to a range of spiritual phenomena. You've got 69% of people believing in or open to the possibility of the soul. 57% believe in God or a higher power. 60% believe in miracles. 48% believe in ghosts. And Bridie says this is a very Irish Catholic thing. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check out the results for yourself. But I asked Bridie, do these survey results surprise her at all? I don't think that there's that many actual true atheists out there, really. And most Australians have been raised in in a religious background as well. And like me, it leaves it leaves your mark on you. So even if you're not a mass-going or church-going person or synagogue going or whatever going person when you're an adult that kind of stuff still leaves a mark on you and I think still leaves you open to believing in things that you can't necessarily see and I do think it is not a little bit mad but it would surprise me more for people to think completely that there's nothing else out there or that there are things going on that we can't see like by that I mean like God and spirituality and souls like we don't actually know where we get our consciousness from either. It's a mystery even in science, so why wouldn't people be open to other mysteries? You're listening to Life and Faith and we're hearing Bridie Jabour talk about her new book, Trivial Grievances, on the contradictions, myths and misery of your 30s. It's about millennial malaise, whether or not to have kids, what marriage means, how to manage work, social media, what travel is really about, what it's like to grow up with siblings. In the book, Bridie paints quite a hilarious portrait of her Irish Catholic mother. Here's a glimpse of that. She's a midwife and she was there for the birth of both my children. And when I delivered my first son, I was lying back, I was exhausted, raised my head from the bed and saw her getting out the holy water out of her pocket and blessing him before she even handed him to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what's it like to grow up Catholic? How has it left its mark on you? I mean, it sounds as though you don't belong to the tradition anymore, but it must have left its mark on you in some way. Oh, hugely. The sort of Catholicism that I grew up in is very much rooted in community and social justice doing the right thing by other people and for other people. And that is definitely something that I still carry deep within myself and truly believe in, being generous with others, uh, trying to do the right thing ethically, doing what's right for the broader community and not, not ever putting yourself first and always trying to be empathetic with other people. That is, I think is the biggest thing I've taken from my, the kind of Catholicism I was brought up in. You know, I went to Mass every single Sunday. I went to Mass multiple times through the week. We used to say the rosary every night. And I still feel like I am a spiritual person in some ways, and I'm not an atheist at all. I do believe in God, but I guess I have my own unique personal relationship with God. I see what a comfort God is in particular to my mother. She's from Northern Ireland. She's living on the other side of the world from her family. When her own mother died, I was 15, she was, and she was very, very close to her mother and her mother died on the other side of the world and she hadn't got to see her that much over the years. 
And I know that she found the comfort that she found in her faith, in God, in knowing that her mum was still around her and had gone to a better place and that she could still talk to her through prayer is a comfort that I have never underestimated in other people. I think also what religion provides is community and a sense of community. And I really think that a sense of community is so key to our happiness. Almost the point of my book is the borders of my life and my relationships with other people and the people that I love, which is my family, my husband and my children, as well as my parents and my siblings and cousins, and is my friends. And it's even my colleagues as well, to a degree. And these relationships with other people are so fundamental to a good life. And religion provided that kind of community. It provides a place to meet with like-minded people, you know, mass on Sunday mornings, and then you go off and have lunch with each other afterwards. It provides a way to meet other people and build those relationships around something that you share. And I think that what people have lost when they're losing religion, yeah, it could be a relationship with God that they've lost, but they don't believe in God, so that doesn't matter so much. But it's your relationships with other people and something to build your community around. So if when you step away from religion or you lose that in your life, you have to find something else to build your community around. Another quote I want to quote back to you. You say, we want our lives to mean something and lots of us don't have religion or lifelong communities to feel tethered to anymore. We have moved more to being defined by what we have achieved, even if what we have achieved is three 10-kilometre runs in a week. So behind that endless to-do list, and I know I'm speaking to a fellow kind of achieving kind of person, <laughs> um, is, there a, is there a yearning for meaning? Is that what's really behind the hustle of yes, our lives? definitely, feeling a... Void, And there are plenty of ways to find meaning in your life. The whole point of that particular essay is that there are definitely more important things in your life and ways to find meaning in your life from work. But I think that people who have the hustle and feel this need to achieve every day and tick off their to-do list, yeah, you're trying to make your life mean something. You're trying in your own way to make sense of everything and not just have your life be, a, you know, a string of meaningless days because It's quite scary to think that it all doesn't mean anything. Is there a punishing logic to that though? Like if your life um, is based on what you can achieve or what you're striving for, is it also rough if you can't quite get what you're going for? Oh, you're never going to be happy that way. That way you're never going to be. That is not the way to have a happy and fulfilled life, your endless to-do list of feeling like you have to achieve things. I think to have meaning in your life and to be happy, you need to let go of that part of you that feels compelled to achieve and realize what are the important things in your life, which usually are the people around you. And there are plenty of ways to find meaning in your life. It can be through religion, can be through having children, it can be through your volunteer work, it can be through your romantic relationships, it can be through your friendships, but usually it's to do with other people, being in service of other people. Uh, Yeah, those are the ways to be happy. It's definitely usually not going to be through work because if it's through work and achieving there's always more that you can achieve always but you're an opinion editor for the guardian like surely this is a fabulous job right it is i i enjoy my job very much (laughs) (laughs) um you do mention in the book about how at the base of your subconscious is your boss's voice and what she thinks about oh yeah (laughs) <laughs> That's me when I'm working too much. Hey? I really, really respect my boss. Genuinely, I'm not, I'm not just saying that. Uh, yeah, so what's going on there? Because obviously you don't want to say that your identity is the sum of your achievements, but work is a major part of your life as well and trying to navigate that. Is yeah, a huge and we all have to work. Well, most of us have to work. So finding a job that you enjoy is 
a positive thing and I really enjoy my job and I find it intellectually stimulating. But I don't want my sense of self and me at the end of the week to feel I'm happy because I got so many clicks on these certain opinion articles or I'm unhappy because I don't feel like my section went that well that week. You know, you can enjoy your job and I do find it fulfilling to a degree, but it can't be the thing you think about when you're going to sleep at night and it can't be the thing that makes you happy or not because it's one, it's never going to love you back. And two, it's going to end. I'm not going to be the opinion editor at The Guardian for my entire life, you know, hopefully for the foreseeable future. So I can't think that I'm important or that I'm worthy because I'm the opinion editor because it will end. You have to think that you're important and worthy because you have these amazing friends who you have so much fun with or you have this incredible partner who loves you back. Like those are the spaces where you should be getting your sense of self from and from your own self as well and and knowing what your own worth is too. So work can't be a source of ultimate meaning. What about the question of whether or not to have kids? That's where the discussion goes next. You devote a lot of space to the idea of not having children as well as the idea of having children. And you say towards the end of the book that in some ways having children can be wonderful. It's not the only way to find meaning in your life. But you say it's a relief to not have to think of yourself so much. Yes. Right? It's good for you to put your desires second, even third. But I was really struck by that because I feel like what we get told today, and this is not just millennials but everyone, is that we should keep our options open and that happiness will come if we can get everything that we're going for. And yet you're saying kind of put yourself on the back at yeah, least in you some can't areas put, of your life. You can't put yourself at the centre of things all of the time. Don't become a people pleaser or put other people before you who shouldn't be put before you like your boss and all that, but it's certainly very, very healthy for you not to be the most important person in your life. This this feels like a modern heresy, if I can put it that way. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like- I guess it is. I know because we're, we're, we're in a, we are in a time, and you're right, it's not just millennials being told this, everyone being told this, like self-care, look after yourself, you are important. Yes, you are important. And, you know, self-care started off as a concept of how you look after your community and the people around you, and it's been morphed into having a nice bath or whatever, yeah. like just looking after yourself. It's fine to look after yourself sometimes, but you cannot put yourself first all of the time. You cannot think only of yourself all of the time. It's extremely exhausting and unfulfilling. But yeah, that is definitely not the messages that we get in general from the culture at the moment. Yes, very much. And an older tradition might say it is more blessed to give than receive, which certainly does feel out of touch. They ain't wrong. (laughs) Yeah, it's not wrong. I think it's really clear in your book how intoxicated you are with your children like you're very realistic about raising two boys I have two boys myself as well so I, I totally oh, resonated yeah, with you're that you're so lucky as well you're part <laughs> yeah, of this so great lucky. club that's right and I'm, I'm really struck by what you write how it's in a chapter on marriage but you talk about this note that you have written in your phone which which says believe me choosing to love someone unconditionally and forgiving them always no matter how they treat you and making sure they know it that's for Jesus that ain't for normal people <laughs> no <laughs> why has this stayed with you right even if unconditional love as you go on to say feels kind of like out of reach and clearly you feel it for your children that's oh, what yeah, i'm saying i do feel unconditional love for my children for sure uh they could do anything <laughs> and i would still love them uh i think What that note 
is a reminder to me of is that it is okay to be frustrated by the people that you love and you don't feel all the time super in love and you don't feel all the time like they're the best things in your life and it's okay to get it's okay sometimes when they make you cry as long as they didn't do it in a malicious way it's okay it's even okay to lose your temper sometimes and quite human as long as you obviously don't hurt anyone when you do and you know that's fine that's just all part of loving someone and loving imperfect beings so i i don't think that anyone should feel the pressure in their marriage or in their relationship with their children to never not lose it a little bit with them and think and have some resentment sometimes it's perfectly natural let me just butt in here soon after bridie said this this happened um i really oh sorry i've been thank you caleb caleb has brought me a cucumber thank you <laughs> could you close the door mummy's chatting with a very busy lady as well Okay, I'll hold on to it. Thank you, sweetheart. That's amazing. That's unconditional love. You oh, my God. Me. When I was on the phone the other day, <laughs> a work call, my three-year-old burst into the study and goes, Mom, I did a poo in the <laughs> toilet. That is an achievement. I'm sorry. None of us know, like, what a yeah, real yeah, achievement yeah. is, really. But, yeah, I feel you. Don't worry. I feel you. <laughs> there you go. A glimpse into working from home during a pandemic. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome, Justine. <laughs> I went on to ask Bridie about a fascinating chat she had with Aboriginal scholar Tyson Yunkaporter. He says that modern people are missing their kin, and without kin, there's no identity. I asked Bridie, is there a conflict between kin and individual freedom? Yunkaporter says kin is really important, and yet we're told that our individual freedom is what matters in the end. I think there may be a conflict in thinking obligation to kin is really important. And obviously in my own words, I've already said that it is something that I agree and I can see our, our relationships with other people are one of the most important things in our life. But uh, having your own autonomy is also important. And I think there's lots of things about being human that are in conflict with each other. And it's just about managing those conflicts. I, I don't want to make assumptions about where he's coming from, but it seems as though that being an Aboriginal man with sounds like lots of close ties to his own kin, he's kind of harking back to an earlier world, right, where the group sometimes did um, mean more than your own individual freedom. So it just it feels like a real interesting clash to me where you've got a more traditional world perhaps with its own ties to spirituality and groundedness in community and in land coming into conflict with us today where we're really mobile. Half of us might be living across the oceans if we could, aside from the pandemic. And, yeah, is there anything more that you might want to add to I, that? I think that what he was also part of what he was saying is it's important not to get sucked in too much into your job and, in, and into work and into obligations that aren't going to be that fulfilling. But I think when he was talking about kin, he was feeling that he is in touch with his kin in the modern world and it's definitely still a very possible thing that we don't need to go 300 years back to find that sort of community and that sort of happiness it's we're perfectly able to have that kind of community now we just have to make the effort because people have got a bit lost along the way I think mainly to do with work and also people yeah maybe moving moving away from your family is not always a bad thing but yeah people moving moving around more but you can create your community and your kin doesn't necessarily mean your family your kin can be anyone that you're close to I think well let me ask you my last question um actually it's posed by Eleanor Gordon Smith the philosopher that you met from Princeton she says what's the goal what's the thing you want to leave behind what's the kind of project that you want to achieve 
Now, obviously, you want your achievements, Bridie, but what do you want to leave behind? You know, I think I don't want people to forget me too quickly when I leave behind. I want to be, like, remembered by the people who I love and remembered for a long time because I had such a positive impact on their life. And I also obviously want to leave behind creative projects and things I made, you know, to why I've already written two books. I just want to leave my small marks, I think, that say that I was here and I hope that I've contributed to people accepting themselves more and uh, people's happiness in a small way. You've been listening to Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. Friday's book is Trivial Grievances on the Contradictions, Myths and Misery of Your 30s. It's out now. Thanks a lot for being with us. If this is an episode someone you know might enjoy, please do send it on to them. Help us spread the word about life and faith. Next week. University authorities persuaded him to give a lecture in the Michaelmas term 1962. And because I was already a C.S. Lewis aficionado, I'm afraid I skipped a few maths lectures just to cross the road surreptitiously. At the exact second of the start, he would burst in through the double doors and he would just start lecturing. He'd take off his hat, unwind his scarf, take off his coat, and all that was completed just as he reached the podium. But it was so amusing because he lectured, I think, for exactly 50 minutes. And then he reversed this process. He kept lecturing as he put on his hat, coat, wound up the scarf, and the last words were uttered as he burst out of the double doors. There was no time for Q&A.